Welcome to Black Power Talks. I'm Dr. Matsumela Odom. I'm Dexter M. Lemwingu. And I am Soliana Bikel. Uhuru means freedom in Swahili because freedom is on our minds 24-7. June is Black Music Month, and today we're observing it on Black Power Talks. Much like the origins of Black History Month, Black Music Month emerged as a form of resistance to colonial white power's domination of African people, African culture, and the African narrative. In the 1970s, the famed Philadelphia music producer, Kenny Gamble, visited Nashville and learned of the Country Music Association and the creation of Country Music Month. Kenny Gamble decided to create Black Music Month with the original theme to preserve, protect, and perpetuate Black music. Black Music Month is a form of resistance to the colonial narration of history that silences and erases Africans from the past. Chairman Amali Chatella has noted that it's very easy for African people to not recognize their culture because our culture is so ubiquitous. It has been stolen, packaged, and sold back to us as anything but African culture. To struggle for the control of history and the control of our own narratives is to claim our rightful place as the architects of our own destiny. This is especially true of African musical traditions. On Black Power Talks, we're uplifting Black Music Month as a progressive political project for African people. Music has always been central to African unity and African liberation. In fact, one of the most common words throughout the various quote-unquote languages of Africa is the word ngoma, which could mean drum, music, or dance. When we understand the centrality of musical production to the African Revolution, from the Haitian Revolution to the African Revolution of the 60s, we can get a better understanding of how we can fight for our freedom and the role of the artist in that struggle. The song at the top of the show today was Into Yam by Miriam Makeba. 
This particular version of the song was featured in the 1959 film Come Back Africa. In the song, Makiba expresses her love for her partner, despite the fact that various mechanisms of colonial capitalism have largely broken him down. This is surely an African internationalist love. Miriam Makiba is affectionately known as Mama Africa to many. She was born Zanzile Miriam Makiba, March 4, 1932, in Johannesburg, South Africa. She passed away in 2008. Miriam Makiba would have been 90 years old this past March. Miriam Makiba's music played an important role in the African Revolution by building bridges across the colonial borders that divide African people. In a time when the Bantu Education Act of 1953 forced the colonizers' languages on African people, Makiba sang in the African tongues and embraced African beauty standards. Her natural hairstyle influenced the anti-colonial trends for African women. As well, from the mid-1960s to the 1970s, the name Makiba became a popular name for African girls born in the United States. More importantly, she embraced African anti-colonial revolution. In the United States, she actually joined the California-based Black nationalist organization, the Afro-American Association. The Afro-American Association was a precursor to the Black Panther Party and the US organization. For a time, she married Kwame Ture, leader of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, and the subsequent All-African People's Revolutionary Party, AAPRP. She lived in Guinea-Conakry during the time of Ahmed Sekouture. She upheld the political traditions of Kwame Nkrumah and Robert Sobukwe. Nota Baloyi, an African rapper and music executive in South Africa, recently stated, People always credit Nelson Mandela that he freed us. No, Miriam Makiba freed us. If it wasn't for Miriam Makiba going to the U.S. meeting up with Harry Belafonte, she would not have gone to the U.N. and explained what Black South Africans were living under. As far as Americans were concerned back then, before Miriam Makiba spoke about it to the U.N., everything was normal. In my own writings... I emphasize the importance of Miriam Makiba, Hugh Masekela, and other African artists in exile. I argue that these African cultural workers use their time in exile to deepen their bonds with other members of the dispersed African nation. They bridge the space between African liberation struggles on the continent and the Black Power movement, and more importantly, sustain the anti-apartheid movement following the incarceration of its leaders, such as Robert Sabukwe of the Pan-Africanist Congress following the Sharpeville massacre in spring 1960. Before the highly publicized Soweto uprising, the death of Steve Biko, and the sports and cultural boycott organized by poet Dennis Brutus, the cultural work of Africans in exile kept the spirit of the struggle alive by bridging the gap between Black people of South Africa and other Africans around the world. To discuss this with us today, we are joined by Dr. Martin L. Boston. Dr. Boston is an assistant professor of Pan-African Studies and Ethnic Studies at California State University, Sacramento, Sacramento State. He holds a doctorate in Ethnic Studies from the University of California, San Diego, UC San Diego, and is also taught at DePaul University, UC San Diego, and Washington State University before joining the Ethnic Studies Department at Sacramento State. Dr. Boston has multiple projects in the work on the role of music, expressive culture, and African liberation. His doctoral thesis, Belonging, New Africanism in South African Cultural Producers Confronting State Repression in an Era of Exile, focused on exile. It studied the practices of function of government control 
in as an avenue through which South African cultural producers and creative works become active in the politics of various countries around the world. Uhuru, Dr. Boston, and welcome to Black Power Talks. Uhuru, thank you for having me. Uhuru, Dr. Boston. Uhuru, how you doing, brother? Uhuru, Uhuru, Dr. Martin Luther to Boston. How you doing, brother? I'm doing all right. Is it okay that I call you Martin? Yes, please, please. All right. Well, thanks, Martin. Today, we are raising up Miriam Makiba for Black Music Month. Tell us, who is Miriam Makiba and what drew you to research her? First, I'd like to say thank you again for uh, having me. This is a very exciting conversation. I love the fact that Miriam Makiba is being talked about in, um, in, Black, His, um, in Black Music Month. Um, it's a really, I think, important person to, be, um, to talk about because of her kind of long reach across the African diaspora. So again, I appreciate um, you all having me. Mary McKibba was an international superstar singer. Um, starts mm-hmm. with really kind of humble beginnings in South Africa and Jeppe, in a township in Jeppe, South Cal- uh, South Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, and she really starts with these really kind of humble beginnings, but eventually becomes like this international superstar singer, wins a Grammy with Harry Belafonte in the mid-1960s, and really, really, really kind of posits an image of Africanness, of an African woman that hadn't been seen before, that was on an international stage with huge popularity in, in mm-hmm. a way that hadn't been done again um, before. Um, but more importantly, Mary McKibba was very much committed to African liberation, specifically South African liberation, but African liberation across the world. And I'm not even speaking about her exiled home of the United States, which she um, begins her time in the United States beginning in late 1959. But she travels literally all over the world. You mentioned in the introduction that her nickname was Mama Africa. And she gains that nickname when she winds up, by the time of her passing, um, having passports for dozens of African countries that were gifted to her because of her influence in the continent of Africa. But she had a huge influence in people's political trajectories. Uh, music, style, fashion. I mean, she was just an, a huge, huge figure, um, very important person to talk about. And again, I think I'm very excited to talk about it. So I'm sure we'll, we'll get into more of the nitty gritty, but that's who Mary McKibba was generally. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, I appreciate that. I know she really was a giant. And I think just, you know, just what you mentioned there, as far as um, just the different countries, you know, printing passports for is definitely a testament to the influence she had um, and just the unity that everybody had with a with a Miriam McCabe. So I just really want to salute, salute that comrade, salute that sister. And I know that we'll get more on the specifics um, as the discussion goes on. But can you talk to us a little about the role that music played in the African liberation struggle in South Africa? Like what similarities have you found to the role of music in the United States and the role of music in South Africa specifically? and probably Southern Africa in general. Awesome. Appreciate that question. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. one of the things that make United States and South Africa, uh, wh- why we talk about them so often together, is not only because of their history with kind of racial segregation between Black, particularly Black and white populations. The difference being um, in South Africa, obviously, it's majority African population with the minority white ruling government, where in the United States is in many ways, the opposite. But the particular kind of racial tyranny, colonialism that was specific to those settler colonial states in South Africa and the U.S. that targeted South Africans 
is one of the things that South Africans and African Americans, you know, Africans across the world, um, what, what those two specific places is one of the reasons people talk about those two spaces together so much. But one of the other reasons is because of kind of musical traditions that are very similar between Black people in the United States and in South Africa. Now, we're told and we know that a lot of the um, Africans that come to the United States come from West Africa. But there still is a lineage of very similar musical traditions, particularly around kind of choral singing, you know, call and response um, kind of musicianship and kind of improvisation that happens both in South African, in South African kind of traditional music and uh, the music that comes in the United States. But music in general um, has always been a very important part of um, kind of liberation. Is it, like you, you spoke about in the beginning, the idea of the drum music has always been central in expression and ways of communication and ways of kind of thinking and thought and, um, and ways of expression. And those things have been very important. We know the history of the United States in the slave hollers, how they not only were times to kind of come together as a community, but then also to communicate messages of escape and survival. And it's very similar in ways that we think about music kind of playing those same kind of roles, even in South Africa. And there's a song that comes out in the mid-1950s for Nancy Jacob and her sisters, written by uh, Vusili Mini, where they wrote a song called Meadowlands. And this song comes because the South African government had started destroying a, an important township um, an important city called Sophia Town, which had its own renaissance, much like Harlem or Chicago. The Harlem Renaissance, those was a Sophia Town renaissance. And the South African government started to literally tear down that city, that, that township, and started physically, forcefully removing people to a place called Meadowlands, right? And it was a, a bunch of houses that looked like matchboxes. It just wasn't the same environment, right? And because of that, Nancy Jacobs and her sisters started singing this song called Meadowlands. And though it sounds like like they were kind of celebrating the move, it was very much a protest song. And everybody that sang the song and brought the song, it, it communicated these kind of secret messages, much in the lane of African-Americans. So I'm, I'm just saying there is kind of a long history with the ways music has been used as a way to communicate messages, to think about freedom and liberation in ways that other mediums just has not has not done. It's just a very, very kind of long history. I'm sorry if I didn't get to all of your questions. I think you had a couple more, but um, please, please ask again. No, no, honestly, uh, Martin, that is um, on point. I really appreciate the fact that you are even jumping ahead to some of the other questions that we have, such as the importance of the Sophia Town Renaissance and things like that. I know that you and I uh, really studied this stuff concurrently and right. um, thinking about so many of the same questions and things like that. So I really appreciate that you mentioned the song Meadowlands and the raising of Sophia Town, which we'll get into in a little bit. Sure. On that note, one of the groups that actually I look at was Humasakela and the Jazz Epistles, which in many ways in their formation reflect the politics of the Pan-African Congress or even Steve Biko and the Black consciousness movement, especially in joining Black populations of South Africa that the colonial policies had since the 19th century sought to divide, being mm -hmm. the Black people of Cape Town, 
uh, oftentimes referred to as colored and the quote unquote native uh, population and stuff like that, which was all just a part of the colonial uh, policy. Uh, and I know for a fact that the Jazz Epistles, they had a song, it was called Cutlery Room or something like that. What was the name of the song? But it, it they, they had a they they had a song which was about it was it was basically would be translated to like a dish room uh, in the United States. But it really uh, focused on the fact that here they were this the very first uh, jazz band, black all black jazz band of South Africa. And when they play these big time hotels, they'd have to go and eat over in the uh, dish room. Uh, they couldn't eat uh, in the main parts uh, of the hotel. So we know for a fact that the musical formation was a part of a much larger political resistance taking place at that time. So on that note, Martin, I want to ask you this question. Even before many people realized it, the cultural traditions of Africans in the United States and South Africa were in fact linked. You talk about this a little bit. Mm -hmm. In my work, I argue that the musical traditions descending from New Orleans and Louisiana, namely jazz and its predecessors, linked Africans from the U.S. and South Africa together as early as the late 19th century. And in many ways, this can even go back uh, even further than that to the circulation of groups like the, uh, I think it's the Hampton uh, Jubilee Singers and things like that during uh, the 1860s and 70s. So. What can you tell us about these early bonds between uh, African musical traditions in the U.S. and African musical traditions in South Africa? Because one thing that stands out to me, and we'll talk about this a little bit more, but in the film Comeback Africa, they show people doing what's called in South Africa Zulu wedding. And in these weddings, you have people dressed up in tuxedos and wedding dresses and they're walking down the street carrying umbrellas and behind them yeah. are people playing brass instruments and any person who sees that knows exactly that that's, that's a second line wedding right? from new orleans louisiana and similar musical practices take place in cape town so this tells us something about the circulation of african music african traditions uh, in a way that a lot of people actually might not think of if you follow traditional or actually sort of older forms of of African cultural history. So uh, what can you tell us about some of these early bonds and the importance yeah, of Yeah, so I think you, you're hitting all, <laughs> you're in the nail right on the head. Um, there's the Fist Jubilee singers at Hampton um, really kind of do like those long um, all over the world kind of tours. We see that in the, you know, mid 1800s to late 1800s, um, which have a huge impact a lot on kind of the Vaudeville and um, other kinds of shows that wound up happening all over South Africa. Um, but we also see, uh, which you've talked about in your own research, the gumbo troops, right, coming to the United States from the early 1900s to the mid 1900s, which in a lot of ways people say is where um, Black Greek letter organizations in the United States get their stepping from, right? Their stepping traditions literally comes from South Africa in many ways, from the mines and those gumboot dancers and those troops coming to the United States, right? So there's a way that South Africa and U.S. have always been in very much conversation. They're, they're conversations that they've always been able to understand. One, uh, the colonial oppressors, the British, <laughs> which makes it a little bit 
you know, makes the language barrier one that was not one that was a huge hurdle to climb um, in a lot of ways. Um, but then also the ways in which, again, um, their choral traditions, their music traditions are so similar that they were able to really kind of um, interpret each other in very, very interesting ways. Yeah. So, the, I mean, those are the, some of the early things that I think about in, in ways, but I think by far the biggest one is American ragtime music, the New Orleans jazz that gets over to the United, to, um, through, you know, multiple ways, winds up in the United States, along with, you know, UNIA path pamphlets. So South Africa gets through maritime, through shipping, through, um, you know, World War One, a lot of soldiers who wind up in South Africa for various reasons. Through a lot of that, you see the, the passing of things like one, the UNIA, and you see a lot of American ragtime music. And also boxing is a huge import um, to South Africa in the early 1900s. And you see how that winds up coming into a lot of the township music that prevails, a lot of township jazz, which is Mpanganga and... Um, and um, so, so let me ask you a question, because that's Sorry. actually the follow-up that I was going to ask you about uh, in Bakanga, because Mary McCabe largely sang what is known as township music, including right. in Bakanga. And Bakanga is often referred to as a traditional music, right? Traditional. Yeah. But it is, in fact, a music formed out of the modern 20th century struggles against colonialism and subsequently apartheid in South Africa. Why is that focus on modernity important to you and your work? Not just this sort of the traditional, quote unquote, but why is that focus on modernity important to you and your work? That's actually an interesting question. I don't know if I've ever thought about it in those terms. I think I, I concentrate so much on it because it has so much to do with how we wind up understanding ourselves as, you know, either African or Black in these kind of much more amalgamized terminology um, it has so much to do with modernity. It has so much to do with production, with, you know, industrialization and bringing people into from rural to urban kind of communities and from rural kind of agricultural economy to a industrialized city environment, right? And so much of the ways in which South Africa changes and explodes and becomes this huge space, uh, specifically like Johannesburg in the late 1800s after the uh, Witzbatterstand gold rush, all of that just kind of, again, creates, uh, it, it creates newness, right? Um, there's ways in people that have never thought of themselves in this way, um, and they're forced to in many ways, but it produces just, it's a powder gag for, for, for new thought, understanding, and ways of um, ways of solidarity and um, ways of thinking about liberation and so on and so forth. Uhuru, uhuru, yeah. Thanks for that. You are listening to Black Power Talks, produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. In observance of Black Music Month, today we're discussing the life and work of Miriam McKeba with Dr. Martin L. Boston. Pega na ti, bata, bata, 
we just heard was Pata Pata, a 1967 hit by Mary McCaba. So Martin, Mary McCaba emerged on the scene in the 1950s as part of what you and other scholars have termed the New African Movement and the Safaitan Renaissance, as you touched on earlier. Now, the New African Movement should not be confused with the similarly termed New Africanism in the United States. Can you tell us what was the New African Movement and the Safaitan Renaissance? A little more on that? Absolutely. The easiest way to kind of understand it is very similar to the New Negro Movement. It literally comes out the same terminology as the New Negro Movement, even though it kind of precedes the New Negro Movement in certain ways, um, at least how it's um, historicized by the late Natongela Masiela, who's kind of like the doyen kind of scholar and thinker on New Africanism, right? So he periodized it from like the Zulu cultural renaissance in like 1862, so right at 1960, which is the um, Sharkville Massacre, which changes it all. And in many ways, it has something to do with, you know, mission, mission educated Africans really trying to get a grip on where they stand in South African modernity. As the Dutch and British are fighting each other over African lands, right, through military might, disenfranchising African people on that in that space, Africans... Um, especially those that with mission, with those kind of mission educations, those mission school educations are really starting to say, okay, where do we fit into the context of our homeland, right? Um, into this South Africa that is being built. Who are we as modern subjects? Not the rural subjects that were in, you know, all the kind of traditional society, but as we get in more of these cultural hubs and urbanized locations, who are we in this space and how do we resist, you know, colonial domination? How do we take some take of what we see as positive gains in this in this way and how do we 
how do we um, support our traditional selves and, 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 and seek freedom? So, I mean, New Africanism has largely been argued as elitist in certain kind of ways, as it's kind of ran by kind of middle to upper class African folks. But in other ways, it has been seen as, you know, a very important way of thinking about Africans' place in modernity and how they could um, experience liberation in, in certain kind of ways. So that's kind of a brief way of thinking about New Africanism. Now, during the Sophia Town Renaissance... Martin, Martin yeah. can I oh, ask... Well, one thing that just stands out to me about that whole period, whether it's New Africanism or not, and I'm happy that you touched on the class contradictions embedded in it, especially thinking about certain questions, but I also understand that it was, in fact, a response to like like the Native Lands Acts and things like that, which really sought to ruralize African identity, whereas the urban spaces were the space for white settlers and things like that. So, so it creates this idea that, you know, Africans are on these quote unquote homelands, which later on become identified as Bantu stands, whereas the city is places for, for whiteness. So, I mean, I don't want to get too much into it, but when you watch the film, Come Back Africa, one thing that really shows you this is the fact that every time a bell rings, which it has to do with the shifts at the mines, that you see Africans moving back and forth. The only time you see Africans in any form of stasis is over in the townships and things like that. But when they're really in these urban places, they're always meant to be moving back and forth, eventually with passes that show that they can be off of these reservations, concentration camps of sort created for them. But yeah, so I just really saw that as well. And so we saw even with the rise of Garveyism in South Africa, people embracing Garveyism and a much more universal African identity as a way to challenge uh, the colonial state, which, uh, you you know, opportunistically plays up these uh, quote unquote uh, tribal or ethnic uh, identities uh, in ways that they don't for the white folks, right? So uh, a Dutch person and an English person, despite the vast uh, dissimilarity between both of those languages, uh, are able to live together, whereas a person who's Kosa and Zulu, despite the vast similarity, uh, have to live apart. So, yeah, but I know you were going to talk a little bit about the Sophia Town Renaissance. Well, yeah, um, so... Masiela makes Tongela uh, Masiela. He he makes the argument that the point of the New African movement was to replace uh, European modernity with African modernity. Now, what he says, though, the Sophia Town Renaissance does that's a little bit different is it's actually trying to replace European modernity with South African modernity. Now, this is an important departure, right, from African modernity to South African modernity. Because, and the reason why he makes this argument is he says that the new African movement during the Sophia Town Renaissance is inextricably tied to the ANC at the time, right? And we'll talk about how that's different as we get out of new Africanism starting in the 1960s in a little bit of time. But because it's inextricably tied to the ANC in the 50s, that is a kind of... There's many contradictions and interesting points about the ANC in the 1950s. So the ANC starts the defiance campaigns, which is in many ways like the ways we're taught about the American civil rights movement in the 1950s 
and sixties, right? Where Martin Luther King, you know, and you know the Gandhi, the Martin Luther King uh, nonviolent direct action modes of resistance, right? So people burned their passes, which you just talked about. People, you know, didn't go to work. They had the kind of general strikes. Those kinds of things were the things that they did. Sit-ins, those kinds of things, was what they did during those defiance campaigns, starting in the mid. 1952. And that was led by the ANC's Youth League, which is like Nelson Mandela, Oliver Tombo, kind of very famous folks like that. But in 1955, they start a very important document called the Freedom Charter. And that is where they basically all the kind of marginalized folks of South Africa came together and produced this Freedom Charter that said that no matter what your race is, you have a place in South Africa. I mean, everybody will have an equal voice, right? And that's how they envisioned the future of South Africa. And they put together this document. Because of that document, Maciela argues that the, that was the Sophiatown Renaissance's idea of what modernity looks like for South Africans at that time. So it is away from the early forms of South African, um, of South African New Africanism, where they're arguing for the replacement of European modernity with African modernity, where now during the Sophia Town Renaissance, they're arguing that we replace European modernity with South African modernity, which is an important departure. And in many ways, I argue it was doomed to fail, and it does fail starting in 1960 when the, when the Sharpeville Massacre happens, right? So as Sophia Town starts to crumble in the mid-1950s, and when the Sharpeville Massacre happens in the 1960s, New Africanism is no more because no longer can you have nonviolent direct action with a apartheid regime who would commit the atrocities of the Sharpeville Massacre. So I know we're going to talk more about the Sharpeville Massacre in a little bit. That's just kind of a a teaser. But um, yeah, that's what I think a lot about Sophia Town. And the Freedom Charter itself is sort of absurd and opportunist in the sense that it abandons the long-term goals of African liberation by suggesting everyone is South African or something like that. Of course, you talk about the departure from that uh, later on, which does split it. People like Robert Sabuqua and others leave the Youth League and start the, I think original was called the Africanist wing or something like that, but eventually becomes known as the uh, Pan-Africanist Congress of South Africa or Zania. So, yeah, thanks for that. Thanks for that. So, Makiba literally burst on the scene with the film Comeback Africa. This film is credited as the production of a white North American filmmaker, Lionel Rogerson, but it is undoubtedly the creation of African cultural workers on the ground in South Africa. They did much of the screenwriting and were the actors recruited to be in the film. What can you tell us about this film, its importance, and Makiba's role in the film? Yeah, so extremely important. So 1959 period is a huge year for Miriam Makiba. Starting in February 1959, she's involved in this play called um, King Kong. And it's based off a, a, a boxer, King Kong Delmeni who actually wound up a couple years prior killing himself uh, in prison. Um, he was in prison for um, killing his, um, his girlfriend, right? But the point of the play itself, it was an all-black casted musical um, with Mira McKeeble was playing the main female lead 
which was Joyce, who was the girlfriend of King Kong. And King Kong was played by the lead singer of the Manhattan Brothers, which Makiba earlier was a member of that. So anyway, it was a huge thing. Matsumela talks about the Jazz Epistles and Hugh Masekela. They were the band, literally the band for that show. I mean, they had like a crazy, crazy, um, one of the main writers in the country, drum writer, um, Ty Machikeza. He wrote the music for that. He's the only person who was not white who was a part of putting together that show. Everybody else was white, from the dancing coordinator to the director to everything else. So it was heralded as this all-black musical, but we see that there's kind of some contradictions in the in labor in that. But anyway, that started in February at the University of Witzwaterstam. And it was the biggest play, it still is the biggest play that ever happened in South Africa. It was a huge hit. It didn't necessarily talk much about um, white domination in South Africa, but did speak specifically about how apartheid kind of can, and the, 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 the pressures of the apartheid world can produce madness in a lot of ways, which is what we talk a lot about with King Kong. So that play happened in February, right? And at the same time, she's recording, she has a small role in this film, King Kong, I mean, uh, Come Back Africa, excuse me. And this small role, though, she sings two songs in a shabine, in a, a kind of illicit bar, but she's so dazzling in it that she is invited by Rogerson to go to the Venice Film Festival, where the film um, garners a few awards. She goes to um, the Venice Film Festival to kind of promote the film, right? So the film is hugely important to Amer- to Mary McKeever's career and is a very, very important film. Again, Michael uh, <laughs> Matsumela spoke uh, about a couple of things that make that film so important. One being that it literally shows Sophia Town. Um, it's one of the only kind of lasting the- theatrical images where we can actually see Sophia Town, the city, while it's literally being bulldozed. We see bulldozers literally in the background as it's being broken down. So it's a kind of, it, it, it has had a real important cultural legacy there. It also was done um, in secret because it's much more than even King Kong earlier. It argues much more against apartheid and kind of white domination. It's much more specific in showing white folks that are oppressing black folks, that kind of thing. So in that way, it's very important. So those are just some of the ways I think that King Kong is in a very important play. But it's, it literally is the reason that Mary McKeever winds up leaving, leaving South Africa. And that is to attend the Venice Film Festival in 1959. Yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. yeah, yeah that's, that's important because it is a pretty remarkable film. I think that it does speak to a certain madness of colonialism and colonial domination. I feel like it it's impossible to watch the film uh, with, without reading it alongside of the work of people like France Fanon. Mm-hmm. I say this because the main character in the film is named Zachariah, and at the end of the film, Zachariah theoretically goes crazy after his wife is killed. Spoiler alert. <laughs> um, however, it actually, when does he go crazy? Does he go crazy at the end after his wife is killed, or is he actually exerting a sort of uh, madness when he's trying to conform over and over again to right. all these different colonial right. rules? Absolutely. And then at the end of the film, go uh, go sane. I call that going sane, right. in, in which he finally says he finally rises up 
Well, the reason why I think that we have to watch the film alongside the writings of people like Franz Fanon is because the way in which the film ends, the film ends with him really trashing his apartment that he gained by working underneath this colonial system. Mm-hmm. And then it moves to a bunch of Africans moving from the mines in sequence in mass mobilization, right? Which to me suggests the impending um, mass movement of African workers in South Africa. So it's a very remarkable film, I think, in many ways because of what Africans make the film to be. Come back. Right, right. So Come Back Africa reveals certain universal functions of colonialism. The film is set, as you know, during the raising of Sophia Town. The plummeted buildings serve as the backdrop of the film, but so does the resistance, as I talked about, right? This is a colonial domination and anti-colonial resistance that links Sophia Town to District 6 in Cape Town, the Central Avenue District in Los Angeles, and other places all around the African world at that time. The film introduced Africans in the U.S., to other things such as boot dancing, the precursor of black fraternity stepping in the U.S. like we talked about, the penny whistles, Zulu weddings, and shabins. So we talked about just a little bit, but what can you say is the importance of these shabins where much of the film is shot? And how is that like a part of African resistance? The shabins illicit bar, right? So the South African government basically says that it's like a liquor act in the early 1920s, actually, even before the National Party comes into office in 48. But it says that no black person, no African can enter a bar. And basically, it also says, you know, basically says it's illegal. It's prohibition for, for Africans, right? They're not allowed to drink, right? But instead, Shabin Queens, which are kind of like women entrepreneurs, would make homemade spirits and have, you know, jazz kind of speakeasies, illicit bars, right? Um, And that's how they function. But they also function as places of meeting, places for organizations to kind of meet and talk, but it's also a place to kind of just unwind. Matsumela really broke it down in a really important way in that that's one of the only places where you don't see them moving in like in the urbanized setting where it was like they had somewhere to be or had to do something. It was a final place to unwind and think through things. So um, the, the Shabin winds up being an extremely important place in South Africa in that time. Thanks for that. You are listening to Black Power Talks, produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. In observance of Black Music Month, today we are discussing the life and work of Miriam Makiba with Dr. Martin L. Boston. Our next song was written for us by my little girl, who's not so little anymore. She's named Bongi. She wrote the song about a great man. I say a great man because it was a black man who fought for liberation, for the liberation of black people. Ladies and gentlemen, Malcolm X. Everybody seems to be preaching revolution Though no one ever seems to show appreciation
Malcolm X by Mary McKeever. Martin, in a recent essay that you published, you look at Drum Magazine as a tool to examine Mary McKeever's political development. Can you tell us a little bit about this project? The piece is called uh, Reading Between the Lines, the coverage of Mary McKeever between 1957 and 1964 in Drum Magazine. So Drum Magazine is this kind of important magazine. It's basically... Uh, BET for South Africa in the 50s, but it's the most widely read publication on the African continent in the 50s. So it starts in 1951 as a kind of like colonial idea by its white editor named Bob Crisp. It starts off, it's called The African Drum, and it says stuff like music of the African tribes and, you know, that kind of really kind of thinking of Africans only as these pre-modern European ideas. Right, 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 right. Um, but soon it doesn't sell because it's actually supposed to be sold to Africans. And then they wind up realizing that they want the modern image, like the folks wanted the modern image of, of Africans, right? And there's a lot of, you know, American uh, music, sports, uh, a lot of kind of South African style and fashion. And those are the things that they really want covered in the magazine. That's what it winds up being. So Mary McKibba's first appearance in this very important magazine was in 1957. She was on the cover. 
She was then with the Manhattan Brothers and, she, and, and the Skylarks, and she begins to be talked about as the emerging figure in South Africa. But by 1964, the magazine is falling apart. So many of the writers who were mostly like a young black male writing core called the Sophia Town Set, they were the main writers of the magazine. Most of them are in exile because of this uh, repression of the South African state, the National Party Apartheid government. Um, so they're looking for ways to talk. And then by the mid-1960s, Drum Magazine is no more. So I, in this magazine, I talk about how we can literally see by how they covered Miriam Makiba, why New Africanism falls apart, and why Drum Magazine itself, because it's backed by the idea of New Africanism, falls apart as well. Because the politics, particularly of the youth, at this moment are shifting from kind of nonviolent direct action to much more radicalized ideas of liberation. So at the conclusion of your essay, you note the political transition of Makiba following the Sharpeville massacre. Um, How did the Sharpeville massacre of 1960 shape her political transition? Yeah. So it's a huge question. March of 1960, there's a Sharpeville massacre. So it was organized by the Pan-African Congress, Robert Sabukwe and the Pan-African Congress. And it was supposed to be all these people bringing their passes, their government issue passes for all of Africans that said where they worked, where they had to be, gave them their curfew, all that kind of stuff. They said they were going to bring their passes and burn them in front of the Sharpeville police station. Right. That was what this demonstration was, or, again, organized by the Pan-African Congress. And instead of, you know, they planned to be arrested. Right. That was the plan. Instead of arrest, the police come in and just start opening fire on this crowd of people, right? And uh, 69 people died, 180 were injured, and that became known as Sharpeville Massacre. So following this, there was a six-month stay-at-home or five-month stay-at-home state of emergency for the country of South Africa. And it really starts this kind of really repressive moment in South Africa. The PAC and ANC are banned from the country. Its leaders have to go into exile. But it also starts to, the the South African government wants to control the narrative. So they also start to ban musicians, writers who are um, in opposition to the South African government. This is why many of the drum writers have to go into exile. This is why Makeba finds her passport was canceled when she tries to fly home for her mother's funeral in the latter parts of 1960, right? To then, she had been in the United States for over a year, and when she tries to come back because her mother had passed to bury her, um, she found out that her passport had been canceled. It was a lot because of the Sharpeville Massacre. So the Sharpeville Massacre is this huge, moment, momentous swing in South Africa's history. In 1961, that's when folks that were a part of the defiance campaign, like Nelson Mandela, they start the MK, or Mkanto Wisezwe, which is the armed wing of the ANC, and abandon those kind of nonviolent direct action methods and start to employ a militarized militia force for sabotage and for the um, violent overthrow of the of the National Party apartheid regime. So that that is a lot of what what, what changes when the Sophia Town, I mean, when um, the Sharpeville massacre occurs. Yeah, horrible, horrible. Yeah, and even uh, the Poco, which I think means fire or something like that, but eventually. Uh, becomes known as the Azania People's Liberation Army uh, is created around that time. The reason why I say that is because she mentions 
Robert Sabukwe when she attended the 1963 formation of the Organization of African Unity, suggesting that, you know, she wishes that Sabukwe was there. As well, we opened this segment of the show uh, with the song Malcolm X, which was written by her daughter, Bongi. Bongi also wrote a song that she performed called Lumumba. So what does all this stuff reveal about her continued political importance even after her passing, almost 14 years? And uh, what should people take from her life? Absolutely. Um, And I think one of the kind of key points to Makeba is that as she's exiled from South Africa, her politics begin to grow immensely. In my eyes, I think she's starting to understand her Africanist policies. That's always been central to her being, right? I think she's always been an Africanist. I think she's just able to communicate it more. Um, I think it's a family thing. At that, at that Sharpeville massacre, two of her uncles were killed, right? That lets you know that they were following in lines with much of what the PAC was, was talking about. They were following what the PAC was saying. When she's at the Organization of African Unity and she says that um, she wishes Sabukwe was amongst these heads of newly African independent states, she wasn't saying Mandela or somebody um, that was um, a member of the ANC. She was talking about the PAC because of their politics that were more Africanist centered. Um, you see her traveling across the globe and for Tab and Boye to, to be uh, in, in, uh, in Kenya. Um, she travels there. She travels to Guinea and lives with her um, then husband, Stokely Carmichael, who adopted the name Kwame Ture in Guinea for many years. So I think what we what we really need to understand about Mary Makeba is that she was a, a advocate of African people, right? Africa for Africans. And she constantly challenged the idea of um, the white minority in their colonial conquest of the world, whether it be in the United States, Africa, anywhere in the world. And she was she was devout in that belief. Um, she sang about it, <laughs> right? She went to the UN in 63 and in 64 to speak about it, right? And she donated her time and money to it. When she went to Kenya to do that work, she actually donated TVs to, um, you know, child um, development or, or um, daycare centers, right? So Makiba was immensely committed. And it wasn't only just in, in those kind of more specific activist, activist lanes, but she was also, a, you know, a proponent of African beauty standards for women. She refused to wear makeup on stage, right? She refused to wear extensions with her hair. She wore the Afro. In many ways, people credit her with bringing the Afro to the United States in the 60s, right? And making it a popular image. It's funny because I read Parliament Funkadelic legend George Clinton's autobiography. And before he was in P-Funk, he was a doo-wop singer, right? In, in New Jersey. He used to do hair as well. He used to like literally conk people's hairs and, you know, perm people's hair. And that's how everybody wanted their hair, he says. He said he first met Mary McKibba at a meeting at a record label. And he saw her and was like, what's going on with this sister's hair? <laughs> like, what, what is this? <laughs> right? And he said by the, but, but by the mid-60s, she was like, as everybody was rocking their hair like that, including Clinton himself. Right? So her, her image, 
her vitality, her commitment was thorough, right? And everybody across the world, Africans across the world rejoiced in it and, and believed in her. She was the perfect person, <laughs> as I would put out. So obviously I'm a huge advocate of Mary McCabe. I think she's um, one of the most important figures of the 20th century, probably ever, as we consider um, African unity across the world. And I'm, I'm so excited that we're, we're talking about her today. Thanks for coming on the show today, Martin. My pleasure. Uhuru. 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 You are listening to Black Power Talks, produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. In observance of Black Music Month, we discussed the life and work of Mary McCabe with Dr. Martin L. Boston. Our theme song, Get Up and Do Something, was written and produced by Aliki Ngoma. Thanks to the Black Power Talks production, research, and promotions team, including Jaja Robinson, Empress Livewire, and the Hips Panda. Uhuru. You can pray until you faint, but if you don't get up and try to do something, God is not going to put it in your lap. And it's no need of running and no need of saying, honey, I'm not going to get in the mess. Gomez, 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 Gomez.